Thank you, Robert. Please don't put your Bibles away. Uh, leave them open, because we're going to be working our way through that passage. Um, as we've been going through 2 Corinthians on our evening services, I'm pretty sure you've already seen the pattern emerging that um, Paul is continually having to defend and justify his ministry to his readers, to the people to whom he is writing. And the Corinthian church was in danger of being taken over uh, by false teachers who were only in it for themselves, for their own status, for their own glory, and, and who were diverting the believers away from, um, from the truth of the gospel. Now, in this passage, Paul continues his teaching on the truth of the gospel, the saving work of Jesus, and our restored relationship with God. In order to, to, to turn his readers away from those false teachers and, uh, and back to the truth as shown in the gospel that he preached. So those are my three headings for this evening. The truth of the gospel, the saving work of Jesus, and our restored relationship with God. Steve has already prayed I prayed for us, so, uh, so, so let's kick straight on. So the first point is the truth of the gospel, and that's in verses 11 and 12. Now, now when Sean and I first moved into Morton, it, it's three years ago this week, actually, time flies. Uh, like most people do, we began to ask around uh, folk that we met, do you know a good plumber, a good electrician, a good decorator? Um, and knowing that if someone can recommend someone that can do these, that has these skills, um, that, and their work is good, then one feels secure in employing them. Now, in the Corinthian church, the uh, matter of false teachers had become so serious uh, that the church would begin, uh, was beginning to ask for letters of recommendation. Uh, but these false teachers sometimes would write their own letters, create their own CVs. Uh, so just briefly, if you would turn back with me to uh, chapter 3. We're actually just, just going to read a couple of verses. Um, chapter 2, verse 17, and chapter 3, verse 1. Just follow this with me, if you will. Unlike, uh, this is 2.17, unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity like men sent from God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? So here we see the very stark differences between uh, Paul and these imposters of the gospel. They preached for profit, while Paul supported himself with his day job of tent making. They all needed impressive CVs. Paul's CV was that he had been appointed by Jesus uh, to preach the gospel to the Gentile world. You can't get a better CV than that. They claimed to have, have or had deep religious experiences. Paul preached and ministered 
the truth of the gospel in the power of the Spirit. In line with Greek culture, they were all excellent speakers, able to stir their hearers with the eloquence of their speaking. While Paul preached the gospel, letting God's word speak for itself. So that the Holy Spirit would do the work of convicting people of sin, bringing them to repentance, enabling them to trust in Jesus as Lord and growing in faith. So, back to our passage, chapter 5, 11 and 12, what Paul is saying that the fear, that the fear of the Lord, that is understanding who God is and what he does, uh, enables people to come to faith. We understand who he is, what he does, so we can trust in him. And this faith is experienced within ourselves. We, we don't need external uh, or worldly factors to convince us. And the, and the Corinthians have seen Paul's sincerity for themselves. It, and it is in this and his faithful preaching of the gospel that shows him to be genuine and sincere and the gospel to be true. Now, Paul has no hidden agenda. He was not self-seeking. He was not out for himself. And, and he just wanted to preach the gospel and bring people into a saving knowledge of Jesus as Lord and God as Father of their lives. The Corinthians could then make a value judgment as to Paul's ministry. Just, just turn back with me again to, to, to the beginning of chapter 4, just two verses here, 1 and 2. 4, 1 and 2. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul simply preached the gospel. And there is a danger today in which many churches have fallen into, and that is to make the message fit the culture. And the inevitable result is that the message gets watered down and, and lost, or can get lost, in the quest to make it more appealing to people. Now, one of the many things that impressed us about St. David's when we first came here was that although Steve and Nick skillfully used modern media methods to communicate the gospel and what the church was doing, the truth of scripture was always central, was always central and always biblically preached. And this is how lives are changed, by the faithful preaching of the word and letting the truth of the gospel speak for itself. So that's the first point. Second heading, the saving work of Jesus, verses 14 to 17. Verse 14, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. 
Now, the use of the word compels is an interesting one. Um, it's used in the sense of being driven on. Um, it's used by Luke in his gospel when he talks about the crowds pressing in on Jesus. They, they were driven to want to hear him speak. And, and also uh, by Luke again in Acts when describing uh, Paul uh, devoting himself exclusively to preaching. He felt driven to preach the gospel. And you can find that in, in Acts, in Acts 18.5. So it's therefore no surprise to us uh, that Paul also uses the word to describe the deep conviction that urged him on in his ministry because he was driven, he was compelled by the love of Christ. Now there's our first challenge. Could that be, be, be said to be true of you and me? Do we feel compelled by the love of Christ, driven on? Is it the motivating force in our lives? And what are we convinced of? What is the one fact that enables us to do this? The fact is, verse 15, that Christ died for all. And why did Christ die? So that your life and mine could be changed from one of living for ourselves and out of a relationship with God to a life where we acknowledge Jesus as Lord, have our sins forgiven, and come back into a restored relationship with God that was broken. And this is totally countercultural because right from an early age we've been conditioned to understand that you know, we all have potential and that if we work hard and study hard in life uh, then we can fulfill that potential through our own efforts. But what Paul is teaching uh, is that our potential is God-given. It's part of the very fabric of who we are. Each one of us is different, with differing intellects, differing abilities, strengths and weaknesses, personalities, likes, dislikes, the list is endless. But all have been created by God. So, by turning to live for Christ, in trusting him as saviour, that extraordinary potential in each one of us is released by the Holy Spirit. And we are enabled to serve God rather than ourselves. Verse 15, please look at that with me. And he, that's Jesus, died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So the link between Christ's love in verse 14 and Christ's death in verse 15 is an important one, and one which Paul mentions several times in his letters. But how did Paul know? How did Paul know that he was loved by God? Now, Paul was a Pharisee. He was a, a legal beagle in the eyes of the Jewish people. He was a top-notch lawyer. You know? um, and he had seen Jesus 
only as a hate object, as a blaspheming rabble-rouser for whom only crucifixion and total destruction was good enough. And then after Jesus had died, Paul hadn't accepted the resurrection at that point, but he, had, but he was well aware that Jesus had died, and he then set about to try to wipe out the early church. So how had his life been turned around? And how had he become so utterly convinced that God loved him? Well, in just the same way that every single believer who has turned to Christ has in a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus. Now, okay, Paul's encounter was probably more dramatic than most, but Paul met God and God changed his life. And that is true of everyone who was given their life to Jesus. At some point in our journey of faith, we have all had an encounter with God of one sort or another where God has faced us with the challenge of his claim on our lives. So Paul could later write in, in, two, in two of his letters, Galatians and Romans, in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and the life I now live I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ's love, Christ's death. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ's love, Christ's death. And this demonstrates very clearly that Christ's love and Christ's death are inextricably linked and available for us to accept for ourselves. And Paul then goes on in verse 16, rather autobiographically, that he, brackets, we, once viewed Jesus from a worldly point of view. Verse 16, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. So not really understanding who he was or why he came or sometimes even being antagonistic towards Jesus. But when we come to faith, our view of him is completely turned around and we see Jesus for who he is, the Son of God and the Saviour of the world. We now come to verse 17. Now you know I'm a great fan of Paul's therefores and, uh, and this is one of the best. Um, verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he, she is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Exclamation mark. Hmm. Jesus has enabled us through his death and resurrection to take on a whole new life. The old life lived for ourselves and separated from God by our sin is gone. And through God's grace we are a new creation empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now I wonder if there's anyone in church here tonight 
uh, who is just longing to experience that new creation, that new life for themselves. Tonight could be that moment when your life is changed. To become a new creation, to know your old life is gone, and that you are once again in fellowship with the God who created you, who loves you, and who gave his son to die for you and to deal with your past life. Is that true of you? If it is, please speak to a trusted Christian friend who can take you on. So that's the saving work, work of Christ. The third point is the restored relationship with God. Verses 18 and following. Excuse me. Have you ever experienced a breakdown in a relationship and one that you wished you could put right? I'm sure it's happened to all of us at some point. One of the ways that this can be done is through mediation in, in which the differences between the two parties are aired and common ground is sought in order to bring about a reconciliation between the two parties. Well, this is what happens when we give our lives to Jesus. You know the wonderful picture from the Gospel uh, when the temple curtain is torn in two as Jesus dies. And, and that signifies that a new personal and direct relationship with God can now take place between the one who is now trusting Jesus for their life and the creator God who made this possible, us and Jesus. There is a reconciliation between the two. Verses 17 and 18 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a he, she is a new creation, the old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Jesus is the mediator through whom we come. We become reconciled back to God. And the relationship, the broken relationship is fully restored. And one of the great privileges of the Christian life is that we are given the task of showing this reconciliation to the world through our changed life our changed actions, thoughts, words, attitudes. And our new lives show the truth of verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. So God doesn't count our sins against them. God doesn't have a big book and says, well, you remember that back in you know, 1993, you did that. It's God completely gone, washed away forever. And we are reconciled back to God through Jesus. And in verse 20, Paul refers to Christians as being ambassadors. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. 
Now, an ambassador is someone who represents the interests of the British government in a foreign country and um, helps British nationals living or traveling in that country. Now, we as Christian believers are called to represent Jesus and live and speak for him, seeking to bring others back into that relationship that we are with God, that we ourselves have experienced. What we have experienced, we can now share with others. And this is what verse 21 tells us. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In his death, Jesus represented us. He took our sin. He took the punishment that was due to, that was due to us because of our sin upon himself. Because this is God's will and purpose to bring us back to himself that we might have a right standing. That's what righteousness means, having a right standing before him. And so now in that new, restored, fulfilled and reconciled relationship, we in our turn represent Jesus. And that means that, that, that those to whom we represent Jesus, our friends, our neighbours, our families, work colleagues, casual acquaintances, can all make their, ju their judgment about him by what they see in us. The extraordinary fact is that God has chosen to make known this wonderful gift of new life and reconciliation back to himself through us. How else could he do it? I heard this story many years ago. I'm sure you've heard it too. When Jesus returned to heaven, one of the angels asked him, Lord, what plans have you made for the gospel to be spread to all nations? Jesus replied, oh, I've left 11 men down there to do that. There was a long pause while the angel pondered this fact. Only 11? Yeah, only 11, replied Jesus. Again, a long pause. And what is your plan B? There is no plan B, replied Jesus. We are God's rescue mission for the world. And, and the first two verses of, 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 of chapter 6 make this very clear and they bring an urgency to our mission. I tell you, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. What Paul is telling his readers and us also is that we cannot let this wait. We do not know when Jesus will return and when all this will be wrapped up, but return, he surely will. And so it is therefore God's purpose for us to understand the truth of the gospel by letting God's word speak for itself, the saving work of Jesus so that all can receive forgiveness, have their lives changed and become a new creation before God. And the reality of a restored relationship with God so that in our ordinary, everyday lives we can represent Jesus and show him to others. Because 
there is no plan B. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord. It teaches us so many wonderful things. Lord, just help us to be more faithful in our love for you, in our understanding of the gospel, of, of reading it, of the fact that you have changed our lives so completely and that our lives can be changed and that we are now one with you. Thank you, Father. Help this to be really important in our lives and enable us to speak for you because we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.